Jesus is hours away from his crucifixion. And in the garden, he prays. And in his prayer, there is contained one petition. It's grounded on one purpose. And within his prayer is a parenthetical thought that ought to encourage us. Please turn with me to John chapter 17. John 17. We're going to read verses 1 to 5. And we'll be looking at those three points. His petition, his purpose, and the parenthetical thought. John 17, 1 to 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Our God, as we have before us the scriptures that contain this prayer, again, I'm struck that we have entered holy ground. We have been given the grace to lean in and to hear our Savior pray to you. And Lord, I pray that the essence of his request to you would be understood by us and it would be transformative in how we think, how we feel, and how we act. Grant to us the gift of the Holy Spirit in illumination. Fill us with your Spirit, Lord. Help us not to hear this as the words of man but the words of God. And we pray this for your glory and for our joy. Amen. The petition, only one. In verse one, glorify your son. It's repeated in verse five. 
And now, Father, glorify me. I'd invite you to turn to the book of Philippians for a moment to chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Very familiar passage to you and I. Reading from verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When Jesus prayed back in John 17, glorify your son. He was praying to be restored to the glory that he once had. Philippians 2 is called by theologians the humiliation of Christ. He humbled himself. He emptied himself. That's in Greek is kenosis, which means he poured himself out into humanity. I want you to notice that what Jesus is praying in John 17 is the reverse of the humiliation. He is praying for the reverse of the kenosis, the emptying. He is praying, now that I have thought myself not equal with God, but now and now that I have taken on the form of a human being and humbled myself, even to the death on the cross, now, Father, reverse that process. Take me back to where I was at the beginning with the glory I once shared with you before all this happened. That's what he's praying for. And he says in verse 1, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. In other words, glorify me to that pre-incarnate glory that I once had with you. Earlier in verse 1, we read, the hour has come. What hour is that? It's not the 24-hour day hour. It's not just a segment of time. This is the hour, the moment, the time period. This is the event why Jesus came and humbled himself and became a man. He came for this hour. And the hour now has come. So Jesus is saying, reverse the process, Father. Restore me, verse 5, to the glory I once had with you. And the way to do that is is that I would glorify you. Glorify me that I might glorify you. 
how would Jesus glorify the Father? Well, the answer is filled in the New Testament and the Gospels, but in Matthew 16 we read, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised again. This is how he was going to glorify the Father. So he's praying, Father, glorify me with the glory I had once had with you by, by letting me glorify you on the cross. That's his petition in a nutshell. That's what he's asking. Glorify me as I glorify you. There was only one way that Jesus could glorify the, the Father. Satan in Matthew 4 came to him and offered him the kingdoms of the world if he would worship him. But there was only one way that Jesus could glorify the Father, and that is suffering and dying and rising on the third day. That's his petition. Why is he asking this? My second point. What's the purpose? Why is Jesus asking for this mutual glorification to take place? Well, the answer is that he has, in verse 4, accomplished the work that he was given to do. He's accomplished what the Father had sent him to do. That was his purpose. His purpose was to give eternal life to all the Father had given him. Please note the intentional wording. His purpose was to come to earth, live and die and rise again, and give eternal life to all the Father has given him. It's repeated for emphasis. And he did that. He claims that he did that. It's an accomplished fact. Eternal life or salvation has been made for all whom the Father gave to him. Earlier in the sixth chapter, we learned that all that the Father gave to him will come to him. And we learned that all that the Father gave to him would have eternal life and no one would pluck them out of his hand. Now here we read that he has completed eternal life or salvation for all whom the Father has given to him. I want you to notice two things. Number one, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is stated here as an accomplished fact. Eternal life is accomplished at the cross. Why do I emphasize that? Because sometimes we hear that Christ died as a potential salvation for some. The fact is, the death of Christ accomplished salvation for all the Father gave to him. It's an accomplished fact. The Hebrews, the preacher in 
The book of Hebrews says in chapter 1 of Hebrews 1 that having made purification for sins, he sat down. Past tense, accomplished. Nothing more to be done. In a few hours from praying this prayer, Jesus will hang from a cross and he's going to say these words and now you're going to know what he means. He cries out to the Father, it is finished. Salvation for all you gave me is accomplished. It's a fact. Secondly, I want you to notice that this day, this accomplished, this accomplishment that Jesus completed on Calvary was ultimately to the glory of the Father. Most of us, if I were to ask you the question, when you think of the cross, what emotions or thoughts does it emerge from you when you think of the cross? And many of us would answer in the words of a song, oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. And what I'm going to say next does not minimize that. Please understand that. But that is secondary to the primary purpose and ultimate purpose of the cross is to bring glory to the Father. That means if Jesus fails on anything here, God the Father is robbed of his glory. If Jesus did not gain salvation for all that the Father gave him, the glory of the Father is at stake here. If any whom the Father gave to the Son fails to come to him, the glory of the Father is at stake here. If any whom he gives eternal life to perishes, the glory of the Father is at stake here. This is not a trite matter of doctrinal dispute among people. This has all to do with the glory of God. The ultimate effect of the cross was to bring glory to the Father. The late Grant Osborne writes, this culminates the glory theme of the fourth gospel, meaning the gospel of John. You see that. We've been, we've been going on this journey. This is our theme verse. We have seen his glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the theme here. I've preached over 72 messages on the Gospel of John. And every one of them have, have the word glory in it. And now, as Grant Osborne has rightly concluded, this is the ultimate glory in this gospel. There was a glory at the wedding of Cana. There was a glory at the feeding of the 5,000. There was a glory at the raising of Lazarus. But beloved, there is no glory displayed on earth as the glory of the Father displayed in the death of His Son on the Calvary's cross. Osborne says, all these glories, all these sign miracles were just a foretaste of what was to come. 
as Jesus is glorified by God, and he glorified God in himself. So the purpose, the purpose of the cross is to secure salvation to all who the Father gave the Son and to bring glory to the Father. Do you, do you see that? The purpose of, of the cross was to secure salvation for all whom the Father gave to the Son and do that to the glory of the Father. We've looked at the petition of Jesus. Secondly, we've looked We've looked at the purpose. Now I see a parenthesis. You don't have a parenthesis, you know, little brackets in your Bible. Neither do I. But what I read in verse 2 is, and you can look in your text, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, then it's like Jesus was saying, Parentheses, you have given eternal life. What is eternal life? And he makes this little parenthetical thought. So what is eternal life? And he gives the answer. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. sent. Since the Father gave Jesus authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to those that the Father gave to the Son. Jesus answers the question for us, what is eternal life? And he gives the answer to know the only true God and Jesus Christ. What does it mean to know God? Knowing God isn't confined to intellectual understanding. Knowing God entails something akin to fellowship. All through the Bible, this idea of knowing is so intimate and so precious, it's used of the act of marriage between a man and a woman. We read in Genesis that Adam knew his wife Eve and bore a son, Cain. I shouldn't have to get more graphic than this. Knowing God is an intimate, personal relationship on a level that surpasses marriage. Eternal life is knowing God. It's a relationship that goes way beyond intellectual understanding. It's a relationship that goes way beyond just a casual knowledge. Jesus says, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and your Son. And know them on an intimate, personal level. Now I'm going to make my bridge to the Lord's table. This is the knowledge of God that is promised in the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, 34, we read, 
This is the promises of the new covenant. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Everyone in the new covenant will know me. They will have an intimate personal relationship with me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. That's one of the promises of the new covenant. When we gather at the Lord's table in in the past, we've rehearsed some of the other promises of the new covenant. This is what we often remind ourselves from Jeremiah 31. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will remember your sins no more. I will write my law on on your heart. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so they will not turn away from me. By the way, before I carry on, do you notice it's one-sided, this covenant? God says to man, God says to all whom the Father has given to the Son, I will, I will, I will, I will. So saddened years ago in a context where a church leader prayed, thank you, Lord, that because we made you our God, you will be our God. That's blasphemy, according to the scriptures. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. By the way, has anyone here tonight ever thought that was a bad decision? That God would intercept your life and become your treasure and your delight and your key object of worship. Has anyone ever regretted that? I will be your God and you will be my people. I will remember your sins no more. I will write my law on your heart. God says, I will put the fear of me in your heart so that you will never turn away from me. And God says, I will never stop doing you good. And he says also, you will know me from the least to the greatest. That's what we celebrate at the Lord's table, the new covenant. Jesus took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. We celebrate these promises. And the one we're thinking about tonight is the promise of eternal life, which means intimate personal knowledge of God. And that promise was paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. And the Holy Spirit himself has brought that promise to your life. Of course, as we look around today, we know that that promise is yet fulfilled in every aspect. We know that there's the kingdom is still growing. We know that the king is waiting in heaven until all of the enemies are put under his footstool. We know that it is yet to be fully accomplished. 
But beloved, listen to what Habakkuk says when he foresees the accomplishment of the new covenant on earth. He says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What you experience as a believer in the knowledge of God will someday in the restored new heaven and earth be the absolute commonness of all peoples. The glory of the Lord and the knowledge of Him will be everywhere. There will be no place on this newly renovated, replaced planet that where there exists something that doesn't know God intimately. And we celebrate that when we have the Lord's table. So in summary, because Jesus accomplished salvation, which he was sent to do, and he glorified the Father, he prayed that he would be glorified and restored to that pre-incarnate glory that he once had with the Father. This salvation that he accomplished is described in this text as taking all whom the Father has given to the Son and accomplishing salvation in them, completed and done. We live on this side of this prayer. We have the opportunity to looking back on this prayer. The petition of the Son has been granted. His prayer has been answered. And we have the joy of looking back and seeing that it's accomplished. He did glorify the Father on the cross. And three days later, and some days later, I should say, the Father glorified Him. And He ascended back to the right hand of God where our Savior is today. And it was there that God highly exalted Him and gave Him a name that is above every name. That at the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. Therefore, beloved, our God needs to be worshipped. Our God needs to be honored. Our God needs to be obeyed. Our God needs to be preeminent in all things. The Lord's table celebrates that. It celebrates those whom the Father has given to the Son to gather as you were around this table with Christ and His Spirit and to celebrate the fact that He made great and precious promises to us in the New Covenant. And we are simply humble recipients of His mercy. Therefore, we come not with pride, not with arrogance, but a dire state of humility that He would go to the cross and die for you and I who have been given to the Son by the Father. Let's pray together.
merciful God. Prepare our hearts to celebrate your table together. I pray, Heavenly Father, that if your Holy Spirit points out sin in our hearts that we have not forsaken and not confessed, that we will deal with that now, for you are to be obeyed. I pray, Heavenly Father, that if anyone regards and discerns the body of Christ in a wrong way, they would make that right. pray that as we gather, we will gather as not a people who simply come to church, but people who belong to church. So as we lift up our hearts in song and prepare for this table, we plead the Holy Spirit to do a deep work of cleansing in preparation in our hearts that our time in reflection on the cup and the bread would be a time of great joy. Indeed, come Holy Spirit and do what thou hast purposed to do in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.